Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are very excited to be here and share some amazing articles with you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled, Why You Lose Words on the Tip of Your Tongue. Ooh, that's important to me because it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So apparently struggling to recall a word or name on the tip of your tongue might not be a sign of a bad memory, and there's actually an easy way to prevent it. So word finding problems are an almost stereotypical aspect of the cognitive issues that plague middle age and older adults. And these failures can occur for even the most familiar words and names a person knows. And I know it's not just middle age. I'm a, a I guess, so-called young adult. I was about to say, who who you call in middle age, man? But yeah, I know. I, I am, know. though. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting there, too. But the interesting thing that I did not know is that the most troublesome words that researchers found are proper nouns and the names of objects. This retrieval inability can last anywhere from a split second to minutes or even hours, and psychologists refer to these experiences as tip-of-the-tongue states or TOT states, (laughs) and the question is, you know, are they actually the harbingers of befuddlement that they appear to be? Yeah, am I sinking into dementia? That's what I want to (laughs) know. Yeah, exactly. And TOT presents certain challenges to psychologists who want to understand how and why such states occur, and much like astronomers who study ephemeral phenomena like supernovas. Researchers know that TOT states will happen eventually, but not exactly when. And this uncertainty has led to two distinctly different ways of investigating them, via naturalistic methods and by experimentally inducing word-finding failures in laboratory settings, which... All right. Yeah, I love a little manipulation in my scientific studies. (laughs) So researchers studying word-finding and TOT have tried to quantify two aspects in particular, how often these states occur, and the likelihood that they're resolved. Hmm. So one is diary studies, in which people would write down every time they experienced a TOT state, allowing researchers to assess both frequency and resolution rates. And these results suggest that college students experience about one to two TOT states a week, while for people in their 60s and early 70s, the rate is slightly higher. But research participants in their 80s experience TOT states at a rate almost twice as high as college states. Well, that's still only twice a week. That's not bad. Yeah, that's I, not bad at all. See, now I'm like, I am sinking into dementia because I feel like it happens more often than that for me. But maybe it's the frustration that's giving me some yeah. confirmation bias there. Yeah. And, and maybe you just know a lot of people, you know, you got a lot of names up there. Right, You're right. Like, oh, this and that, that. <laughs> yeah. Diary studies do show that most TUT episodes are likely to be resolved. Uh, the typical success rate in such studies is more than 90%. Hmm. But it may be the case that older adults who are more concerned about their memory lapses will be more likely to record such instances, perhaps because their lives are less hectic than those of younger participants. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one, but, you know. They got nothing uh, to do but participate in scientific yeah. studies. <laughs> it could also just be the case that participants are simply more likely to record resolved TOT states than episodes that aren't resolved. Hmm. So the alternative method for studying word finding is to experimentally induce that TOT state. And a method for doing this was developed by psychologists Roger Brown and David McNeil when they were both at Harvard University. 
And they found that simply getting participants dictionary definitions of uncommon English words would often trigger a word finding failure. Oh. And an example from their study was a navigational instrument used in measuring angular distances, especially the altitude of the sun, moon, and stars at sea. Oh, heliotrope is what comes to mind, but I don't think that's right. Yeah, the word that we're searching for is sextant, which oh. is not a word that I have really thought of maybe more than four times in my life. So I don't know if that's a great example of yeah, one. Yeah, like I did know but, that word, but I don't know that I'd have come up with it. Exactly, yeah. But in the study, if they found themselves in a TOT state, Brown and McNeil asked them additional questions. So it's really okay. like if you happen to know this word and you know that you know the word, but you can't come up with it, the researchers go into it. So they discovered that while in such a state, people can report partial information about the sought-after word, even as the word itself eludes their grasp. Hmm. So, for example, the participants performed far above chance when asked to guess how many syllables the word had or what its initial letter might be. Uh -huh. And not surprisingly, when people made errors, they often produced words that had a similar meaning. They also sometimes offered up words that only sounded like the intended term. The definition for sextant also led to responses of sextet and sexton, hmm. but studies with older adults suggest that partial information, such as the initial letter of the word, is less available for them. So, as with many issues in cognitive aging, we can view the increase in tip-of-tongue states as a glass half-empty or half-full. On one hand, these retrieval failures can be taken as evidence that weakening connections between the meanings of concepts and words in long-term memory is occurring. Or it's possible that the increase in word-finding problems with age reflects something totally different. Psychologist Donna Dahlgren at Indiana University Southeast argues that the key issue is not one of age, but of knowledge. The older you are, the more information you have in long-term memory. So it literally takes you a longer time to search <laughs> through all that memory. And so you have more TOT states. I like that definition. It's because I'm smarter. That's why it's uh -huh. harder. And I mean, you know, there's some parallels to computing. Like in a hard drive disk, the more data you have on it, the slower mm -hmm. it can get to seek. And then you need to every now and then do a defragmentation of your hard drive to sort of reorder the bits and pieces that get placed all randomly and stuff. So maybe mm -hmm. we'll eventually figure out how to defrag our own brains that might be cool oh that'd be amazing like i don't know yeah. did you ever back in the day did you ever defrag where like you could see visually it would make like colored bars and tell you like yeah. what process i would literally sit there and watch that like i found the yeah. organization yeah. of it so soothing that's probably not a great habit but <laughs> it was entertaining for me at the time yeah i mean hey if it soothes you and yeah. it soothes the machine like why not yeah uh, we're building yeah. our relationship man <laughs> yeah <laughs> Maybe hard drives have TOT states. They actually do. When they can't find something, they, you know, look around another because it's all probabilistic, but that's a tangent. Anyways, <laughs> um, it is possible that TOT states are useful. They can serve as a signal to the older adult that the sought for word is known, even if it's mm. not currently accessible. Mm -hmm. And this metacognitive information is beneficial because it signals that spending more time trying to resolve the word finding failure might ultimately lead to success. Although, I don't know, for me personally, I've always been of the philosophy that you should just stop thinking about it and then it'll suddenly come to you. Mm -hmm. But if you're an older adult and still worried about the number of tip of the tongue states that you experience, research suggests that you might have fewer such episodes if you maintain your aerobic fitness. <laughs> Yet another motivator that will not actually get me there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from BBC Travel. 
It is about the fifth flavor or umami that has, uh, I suppose, recently gained a lot of popularity. I don't even know how mm-hmm. recently they invented it, so so to speak. But it is, of course, that sort of unidentifiable savory flavor that's just sort of meaty, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it yeah. described very well. But it has been used extensively, apparently, in the Amazon region. Huh. And chefs are rediscovering this so-called ancestral sauce that is nearly ubiquitous in the Amazon, but pretty much unheard of everywhere else. Some people compare it to soy, some to Worcestershire sauce, but most people who try it say it's completely unique. It's made as far and wide as Guyana, Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, and Ecuador. And it has a different name in almost all of these locations, including Tucupi Pichuna, Tucupi Negro, Kumaji, Aji Negro, and Kanizi Pudidi, all of which are summed up by the English translation of just Black Tukupi. The first written record of the sauce dates to 1929 in a posthumous publication by the Italian explorer and ethnographer Ermano Stradelli. And he wrote, To my taste, it is the king of sauces, as much for game as for fish, and to which extraordinary cures can be attributed. Wow. So I'm not entirely sure if he's talking about curing meat or if he's talking about actual medical cures that this stuff is uh, mm-hmm. is good for. It would be nice if it did because <laughs> it's... Yeah, it sounds magical. Yeah, we could always use a couple extra magical sauces. I mean, this is the first time I've had the sensation of my mouth watering for a taste that oh. I'm not familiar with. It sounds really good. Yeah, it seems <laughs> Whatever it is. The, uh, the author of this article has had some and is like, it's amazing and I love it. But they're oh. a food critic, so who knows? Um, uh, yeah. But the main ingredient in black tacupi is manioc, more commonly known here as cassava or tapioca root. It's an incredibly versatile staple food. The cultures that live on it don't just make black tacupi out of it, but also different kinds of bread and baked goods and stewed and hmm. fermented drinks. One batch of black tacupi starts with around 100 kilograms or 220 pounds of manioc root, which is harvested, peeled, and grated into fine shreds. These shreds are then stuffed into a flexible tube of braided palm leaves, which the author said looks like the engorged belly of an anaconda. Hmm. Then they stretch it out thin, squeezing the manioc juice into a bowl below it. So it's sort of like a homemade cheesecloth, I guess, but they're, uh, yeah. they're they're crushing it and pulling out this liquid. The solids that are left inside the tube are set aside for making flatbread while the juice is simmered over a fire for four to five hours. And this step is critical not just for flavor, but because apparently raw manioc is actually chock full of cyanide and will definitely kill you if you eat it raw. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. Of course it's delicious. I mean. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right at the end of the boiling process, this simmering kind of yellowish clear juice starts to caramelize, turning first bright red and then dark brown and thick as molasses. The author described it as an intense flavor bomb, both sweet and mildly sour. She got a chance to eat some from a traditional preparation. First, they ate it like chips and salsa on tapioca flatbread. And then later, Hmm. her hosts added a bunch of it to a fish stew for lunch. And Hmm. black takupi is it's a little bit like miso in Japan, in the sense that different regions do their own thing with it. Denise Ronelt de Arujo, a Brazilian cook and food writer, says the only thing that all the different recipes have in common is that it's a reduction of bitter manioc juice. Some remove the manioc Hmm. starch, others don't. The Venezuelans add chili. In Guyana, you have clove and cinnamon. Some have a slight bitterness or smokiness. Others add ants. And they Whoa. do not in any way expand on <laughs> how you add ants to uh, to your food. But apparently, ant-ridden black tacupi is a thing. Wow. Yeah. And so some of these variations are starting to make it into high-end restaurants across South America and even as far away as Paris. 
thanks to a nonprofit called Despensa Amazonica, which is dedicated to expanding traditional cultural foods into the mainstream and making sure the locals get a fair price for their goods. So uh, mm-hmm. they're doing good work. They're bringing this to us, yeah. which is I'm, I'm in favor of it. Uh, at Boa Street Food, Chef Pedro Miguel Schiaffino puts it in almost everything on his menu, including fish sausages, pork tacos, and even mixed into tomato sauce. Wow. Which, you know, I'm trying to imagine, like, tomato sauce mixed with soy sauce. And I guess I can see it. I mean, I, don't, I think it would yeah, be a completely yeah. different sauce. I don't know if you call it tomato Especially sauce. Especially if it's got a little bit of bitter and sour, it would go well with the acidity of the tomato, I guess. Mm-hmm. I can see that. I yeah, mean, I'll buy it. I'm speculating wildly right. on this flavor that I <laughs> that you've never <laughs> only having described. That's right. Yeah. But I already have opinions about it. That's right. Well, that's, I think, the way to go. I mean, that's yeah. the job of a food critic, really, is to convince you that you have eaten this and that you'll love it. <laughs> yeah. And if you do want to get some, there are links to a few wholesalers in the article. So assuming your Spanish isn't too rusty and you're willing to commit to buying a whole case from overseas, you could theoretically get your hands on some. So oh, I uh, nice. I don't know if I'm ready to jump on that, but if you get some, I'll buy a bottle from you. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I-, I will think about it. It is very tempting. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com, and it's titled, The Surprising Way Keyhole Wasps Can Take Down an Airplane. Ooh. So, on November 21st, 2013, an Airbus A330-200 prepared to take off from Brisbane Airport in Australia, but the pilot turned back after noticing some odd airspeed readings. Hmm. On inspection, the remains of what looked like a wasp were found in one of the plane's pitot probes. And pitot probes are the instruments that tell the pilots how fast they're going whilst in the air, so they're critical to safe flight. It's like if you were driving and had no speedometer, Yeah, now I can see that would be pretty important. Yeah. And that an insect could take down an entire plane seems pretty improbable, but such a thing might have happened before in February 1996, when a Boeing 757 crashed shortly after takeoff from the Dominican Republic, killing all 189 people on board. The pilots had misjudged the plane's speed, the result of anomalous airspeed readings from the Pitot probe, and the malfunction was blamed on a wasp, but the probe was never recovered, so the theory was never officially proven. Mm. And as House's new study points out, this probably in which wasps build nests inside of pitot probes is shockingly common. Of particular concern is the invasive keyhole wasp, which is an insect native to South and Central America and the Caribbean. These wasps like to construct their nests in cavities, including window crevices, electrical sockets, and, as you might have guessed, keyholes. Yeah, you can imagine just trying to come into your house with the key and then out flies a wasp. (laughs) Or you go to plug something in and it shoots out of the electrical outlet? That's not... Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe in that situation, at the very least, the wasp got fried. I don't know. Trying to find a silver lining. One hopes. (laughs) They deserve it. Yeah. (laughs) So keyhole wasps have spread presumably through ship and or air transport to the southern United States and all the way across the Pacific to eastern Australia. And these solitary insects live in tropical environments and measure about 10 to 12 millimeters long, according to House. And the incident at Brisbane Airport in 2013 is actually hardly an isolated occurrence. From November 2013 to April 2019, officials at this airport reported 26 wasp-related incidents, some of them resulting in emergency procedures. 
Okay. All right. I mean, air air, <laughs> air travel's not safe at all right now anyway, so I'm not going to be getting on a plane, but I'm going to need to forget this article before I get on a yeah, plane again. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> While pilot airport officials have a reasonably good handle on the risks posed by larger wildlife such as birds, they still don't fully understand this invasive threat. So to quantify the danger of the keyhole wasp, House and his colleagues 3D printed several replica pitted probes, which were placed in four strategic locations around Brisbane Airport. So over the course of a 39-month monitoring period, the team chronicled 93 instances in which the bugs blocked the replica probes. So that's almost like two and a half times per month, yeah. which is more than I'm comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> so the lengthy monitoring period also allowed the team to study the conditions under which these insects preferred to build their nests, and they found that only the keyhole wasp used probes for nesting, and all replica pitted probes except the smallest aperture were used. And that's about three millimeters, which is Ooh. very tiny. Yeah. Nesting occurs in almost every month of the year, and most nesting was concentrated in one particular part of the airport, namely an area filled with grass. Mm. In terms of how airport and airline officials should deal with the problem, House said simple aircraft management, such as covering probes when planes are idle at the gates, and wasp population reduction measures like traps, could reduce the risk of an incident. Mm -hmm. In addition, he'd like to see all airlines adopt a pitted probe cover policy at Brisbane Airport and other airports along the eastern seaboard Australia to start monitoring for this wasp as it is a seasoned traveler and there is every reason to expect it to disperse to other locations from Brisbane. Eradicating keyhole wasps in Australia isn't currently an option and it's no guarantee that the insect won't return in the future. So House's prescriptions make a lot of sense, but it's just an added hassle for the industry and yet another potential reason for increased fares. Right. <laughs> and with climate change being what it is, the keyhole wasp aviation problem could spread to other areas, mm. including the U.S. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, this story is unlikely to be ending anytime soon. I hate wasps. Right. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's all that needs to yeah. be said. I feel like, I mean, surely there's some kind of a, like a window screen solution where you can put a, a mesh netting over the edge of the probe and it won't mess up the air readings too badly or they can yeah. compensate for it or something. I mean, it just feels like you should be able to keep a wasp out of a little hole if you try hard enough. Yeah. Or, you know, just like the covers, like they're saying, like those are very tiny things, but who knows? I think they're pretty high up in the airplane, so maybe mm. that's part of the issue. But yeah, a mesh frame of some sort or, you know, something with a three millimeter hole opening for the laser, I presume, would probably do the trick. Yeah, I mean, um, that also just encourages them to evolve smaller and I mean, smaller is better than bigger. I don't know. Wasps are evil at any size. That's not Yeah, it. yeah, it's true. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one comes from New Atlas. It's called Life Size Model Heart. 3D printed out of cardiac tissue-like material. So wow. the, the key here is cardiac tissue-like. They didn't actually mm -hmm. print a heart out of cardiac tissue because that would be pretty amazing. That's good. Professor Adam Feinberg at Carnegie Mellon University has developed a new technique for printing with what they call bio-ink, which is a natural polymer called alginate. And if you've noticed me really overpronouncing the word bio-ink just then, it's because every time I see it, my brain reads the word boink. And so <laughs> I have to pause before every single time. The substances have existed for a while, but because the whole point is that they're soft and squishy, it's been hard to print things in 3D space without the items that they're printing just sort of collapsing on themselves. But Feinberg has found a way. He calls it the freeform reversible embedding of suspended hydrogels, or fresh, technique. Ah, uh, nice. And it basically just uses a gelatinous bath to suspend the bio-ink globs until they're fully assembled. 
So there's like a needle that goes in there and injects it into the spot that it's supposed to be, but it's all floating in basically a tub of jello. And once the process is complete, the hydrogel is melted away with the application of heat, leaving only the object behind. Wow, this is absolutely the kind of crazy, futuristic, vat-grown yeah. body parts <laughs> thing that I, you know you see in every sci-fi. Like I'm just imagining fake humans made of human-like materials right. suspended <laughs> in big tubs of goo. Now, but uh, please continue. That's right. It's always <laughs> submerged in goo. That's the the rule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has used this technique before to create small objects, but now for the first time he has created a complete 3D replica of a human heart, which critically mimics the softness and elasticity of a real one. Because this isn't something that they're intending to put inside people. They think it could be a really useful tool for heart doctors to practice doing surgery on before uh. they go cutting into a real person. Prior to this, medical students have largely relied on diagrams and hard models and animal hearts. And, you know, presumably these practice organs are coming from animals that were already being slaughtered for meat. But if not, then, yeah, this is way better. We should definitely use gel and stop cutting into animals. And it makes me think, too, that maybe I don't know if it's possible to get a 3D scan of a living person's heart or not, like with an MRI Mm -hmm. or, you know, definitely not an X-ray. But it's interesting to think that you could maybe at some point in the future scan the person's heart that you're going to operate on. Oh, yeah. Literally practice on the exact model of the heart heart that you'll be working on. That is a good um, idea. I like that. Yeah, I'm making a lot of wild assumptions about technology this podcast, but just going to throw it out there. Yeah, I think we can do it. You got to have optimism. You got to believe it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, as a side note, the 3D bio ink that Feinberg used is bright purple. I don't know if it has to be that color, if it just, you know, that's what they chose, but it's fun. Adds a little pizzazz into the anatomy class. They have a cool picture of it. You can go and look. It's more textured than I thought a heart would be, but I've never seen a real live heart. So who am I to argue? Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This one is sort of similar, but not really. Uh, This is from (laughs) Wired.com and it's titled The Ethics of Rebooting the Dead. So we start with a little story. Uh, On Halloween, Stacey Dowden spoke to her 91-year-old father over FaceTime as he lay in bed in Nebraska with his eyes closed. He was already in a hospice when he began exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 that Thursday. So facilitated by a nurse's iPhone, she and her sister spoke to him at 3 p.m. from their homes in Pittsburgh and Brewster, Massachusetts, respectively. And they were able to see him and say, I love you and goodbye. And by five o'clock, he had passed. Hmm. So that kind of just sets the somber stage. (laughs) Just a a Uh, good, happy intro to what's coming next. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So as the COVID-19 quarantine has worn on, digital interfaces have become enmeshed in our emotional connections to loved ones. So family members like Dowden and her sister are saying goodbye using technology, which often provides the only tool a dying person has to help them through the last transition. Christopher Kerr, chief medical officer at Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo, says that we often see people hang on until that relative arrives or that child is born. Mm -hmm. And video calls can actually also help facilitate passing on. But what about the whole expanse of time after they die and the people they leave behind? Kerr has long studied end-of-life events, and he notes that often the bereaved experience sensory visitations from deceased loved ones, and these phenomena tend to be very vivid, and they tend to leave them with the sense that the loved one is okay. 
And, you know, this sounds a lot like ghosts, but, you know, that's just me. Well, is are they talking about, like, people visiting in dreams? Or are they like, I literally hallucinated my dead relative over there in the corner of the room? All it says is experienced sensory visitations. <laughs> right. They're really hedging their language here. And the next line is, he hesitates to speculate on the underpinnings of a natural physiological response to loss, but he says these extraordinary experiences point to a spiritual capacity that clearly exists in people, which I think is really sitting on the fence extremely well. Right, uh, right. Here. He's basically but, saying, we're not going to say whether ghosts exist or not. We're going to say that people believe in ghosts. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So explicable or not, when somebody has the sense that somebody they've lost is still there, they want to retain that feeling. And recently, some people have turned to technology to simulate that. So hmm. earlier this year, the devastating South Korean documentary Meeting You showed a mother, Jang Ji Sung, in a virtual reality headset trying to touch an avatar of her late seven-year-old daughter, Na Yeon. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. And in 2017, Eugenia Koida built Replica, an AI chatbot designed as a digital remembrance of a friend who had died, and then released the code so that anyone could try to build one of their own. That same year, in a piece for Wired, journalist James Vlahos chronicled his similar quest to create a dad bot of his father after he was diagnosed <laughs> with terminal cancer, which is intense. You know, that's like knowing and just being like, well, it's terminal, so let's just start on this AI robot right away. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess something... if, if dad's on board, but I don't know. I think I might be kind of uncomfortable with helping to train my own replacement. Like, you know? Yeah, that's... yeah. There's something a little bit grim yeah, about that. Yeah, And so... The same week that Dowden's father passed away, Kanye West gave his wife Kim Kardashian West a birthday present, a hologram of her late father Rob Kardashian dancing and offering her a birthday wish from beyond. Yeah. And, yeah. That was weird. <laughs> I watched that. Too. Yeah. Oh. And innovators like Finnish engineer UC Tovinen are pushing technology even further. Tovenin is at work on a haptic teddy bear that can transmit touch from one user to another, which is kind of like a remote intimacy sort of thing. Right. That's two people um, who are still alive. Exactly. Yeah. So like that one, I don't think is quite in the same category as Kanye's resurrection via hologram. Right. As the functionality to recreate a person's touch, appearance, voice, and unscripted dialogue progresses, the notion of resurrecting people as digital entities is becoming much less hypothetical, so much so that it almost feels inevitable. It's already been the subject of a very creepy Black Mirror episode, mm -hmm. and just because something can be done doesn't always mean it should be. We learned that from Jurassic Park a long time ago. Right. <laughs> so, for starters, such a thing isn't always a healthy form of coping. There's also the issue of the agency of the person who's passed. Amber Davison, Associate Professor of Communication and Philosophy at Keene State College and co-editor of Controversies in Digital Ethics, has studied pornographic deepfakes and says the most concerning aspect of digital resurrections would be moments where the person is made to do things they wouldn't have done in real life. Right. I don't know if you saw this, but they actually created a AI algorithm that essentially deepfakes your own face in a video call as a form of compression. So it will read the points on your face. And then instead of transmitting the actual video data, it transmits a reproduction of your own face so that the file size is smaller and it's a lot smoother and higher quality 
And it looks almost the same, wow. but just a little bit different. And even that really creeped me out. Yeah, that is really strange. And just to save data, yeah. I mean, that seems like a reason they would definitely do it, too. They're like, we're not trying yeah, to fake absolutely. anybody. We're just going to perfect this technology for data's sake. And then... Yeah, that's just the, the logical conclusion from being able to do that. Now faking people entirely and those who have passed away, especially because now there's also voice deep fakes. Mm -hmm. But bear in mind, it isn't just the bereaved who try to use tech to keep loved ones around on both sides of the veil, people tried to keep the portal propped open. Davison recalls a dying mother who set up her Gmail to send birthday messages to her children each year, mm -hmm. and Care likewise worked with the patient whose dying wishes included a way of ensuring that her daughter would receive a special message on her wedding day. I mean, it makes sense. There's a, very, a distinct ethical difference, I think, between someone choosing yeah. to send a message beyond the grave versus someone saying, I'm going to reboot you and have you tell me that you love me and are proud of me, even though who knows whether you would have said that or not. Yeah. And I mean, as we get more and more digital and more online, I mean, I think about personally, I have books worth of messages of my own that you could recreate my speaking style oh, sure. and the things that I would say from <laughs> and then transpose that onto a video with my voice deep faked. And you could like really recreate somebody. Yeah. Anyone who does a podcast is up for having their voice taken off the oh. air and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of public recordings of your voice. We could... Oh, boy. Great. Uh, maybe we need to talk later. Right, right, right. No, we'll, All right. We'll get some form signed. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, we're going on kind of a weird theme today because this one is also not about death, but about the idea of being trapped in your own brain. It's called, Is Anybody mm. In There? Life on the Inside as a Locked-In Patient. It's Ooh. by Josh Wilbur at The Guardian. And I can tell you up front, they have all this information because a guy did actually come out of being locked in. So, you know, oh, wow. blanket warning at the start, he does get out of this. But it's pretty gruesome leading up to what happened to him. So the medical miracle in question, his name is Jake Handel. He's a chef in Massachusetts who unfortunately suffered from a severe heroin addiction. The article touches a little bit on what severe meant for Jake. He had a daily routine of smoking heroin before brushing his teeth every morning. And in particular, he says he got really good at freebasing off a piece of aluminum foil while he was driving. Wow. Despite this, he was somehow still holding down a marriage and a mostly steady job. But by the age of 28, he started to experience something called toxic progressive leukoencephalopathy also sometimes known Ooh. as chasing the dragon syndrome because it often happens in heroin users. The symptoms include slurred speech and loss of muscle control. And when they did an MRI of Jake, they found severe bilateral damage to the white matter of the brain. He began to suffer from autonomic storms, which are sort of like a seizure that affects only the nervous system. So your blood pressure rises, the body sweats profusely and spasms, breathing becomes rapid and shallow, and the heart might beat more than 200 times a minute. Holy cow. And as his condition worsened, Jake would storm for up to 12 hours at a time. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't great. And unfortunately, one of the saddest parts about toxic progressive leukoencephalopathy is the progressive part. Once it starts... It usually keeps getting worse, even if you stop using at that point. He was first diagnosed in May, and by November, he was in a coma. So the weird thing about Jake's case, though, and why he has a whole article written about him, is he didn't die. His family was told mm. that he would die within weeks, but he just kept laying there. And eventually the state stopped paying for hospice care, because he wasn't dying, clearly, and they sent him home to just wait it out. And as they discovered much later, for whatever reason... Only his motor neurons had been targeted by the disease. So his life support systems like his lung and his heart were mostly fine. And more horrifyingly, he was fully 100% conscious with no cognitive brain damage whatsoever. 
They did an EEG and it did show plenty of brain activity, but it was sort of distorted and unpredictable. And the doctors felt like it was just more of the autonomic storms. They couldn't say whether he had any real thought. And they told his parents, we're pretty sure he's just a vegetable. But he was still living. And the article goes on at length about the horribleness of being locked in, you know, unable to communicate anything to anybody. It talks about some of the techniques he used to prevent himself from going crazy over the next six months. But we can skip to the chase and reveal that the reason we know all this is because he came out of it almost spontaneously. It's pretty amazing. So on the 4th of July in 2018, he could hear the fireworks outside the window of the room he was in. And he had what he calls just a breakthrough where he just decided for himself, I'm going to see those again, no matter what it took. And he started this daily mantra of positive thinking of, you know, you're going to beat this. You can do it. And suddenly his wrist twitched. And a doctor happened to be in the room at the time and saw him move. And he darted over to the bed and said, do that again if you can. Move your wrist. And he did. And within a few days, Jake could blink and even stick out his tongue to communicate. And with the aid of some communication tools they use for stroke victims, he was able to spell out complete sentences basically letting them know that he'd been in there the whole time and was giving him histories of like, oh, yeah, you said this and you did this to me and you came in and had a fight about my care in front of me. And that was really traumatizing. Wow. And I mean, I wish I had something more descriptive or different to say besides wow. But yeah, it's like <laughs> my only reaction. Yeah. It, you know, this is like a, a nightmare scenario that you imagine, like, wouldn't it be horrible if this thing happened? But that's probably not how that's that right. works. It doesn't but no, do that. it can work that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But he kept getting better as well. By September, he was in a wheelchair. By the spring of 2019, he was speaking again, although still pretty crudely. He basically is, at this point, being treated as a stroke victim. They're sort of working on reteaching those occupational skills and getting him stronger. Mm -hmm. Doctors say all the damage to the white matter of his brain is still there, but it's no longer progressing. And over time, apparently, his gray matter just sort of figured out how to wire around it. Yeah, one doctor said, quote, On a superficial level, he got the poop scared out of him and just decided he didn't want to die. Neurologically, (laughs) I have no explanation. Maybe it had something to do with who Jake is. So, you know, they attribute a lot of this to his personality, which seems to be pretty positive, except for the massive heroin addiction part. Yeah. But then here's the really weird twist. In April of this year, Jake got coronavirus. And he was rushed to the hospital with a high fever and spasming muscles. And pretty much everybody assumed that with his medical history, he was definitely going to die. Instead, he spent one night in the hospital. He woke up the next morning feeling fantastic. And over the next couple of weeks, he discovered that the numbness in his feet had vanished. And his voice, which had been monotone and constricted ever since the coma, had suddenly shifted back to normal. And he asked his laryngologist, he said, this is bizarre, right? To which the doctor replied, everything about your case is bizarre. So I, they, you know, who knows? They're planning to do a complete brain scan in December to find out what sort of weird neurological effects the virus apparently had on his system. And in the meantime, he's been releasing YouTube videos of his progress so you can follow along and find out what happens. But man, like. Yeah. Holy crap. This guy's had a couple of really amazing gambles. And like he just goes hard. Yeah. In whatever it is. (laughs) He's like, oh, coronavirus. I'm going to get it the best way possible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to be the one guy who somehow gets better with it. So, I I mean, you know, I wish him luck. He's definitely clean from heroin for several years now and probably does not have the ability to access more. So it looks like maybe maybe he'll turn something around and be an inspiration for people. Yeah. I mean, I see motivational speaker in his future for sure. Absolutely. (laughs) One of those paths to that. Right. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, this one is completely different. (laughs) It's titled, How Did Knights in Armor Go to the Toilet? Yeah, how 
did they? Yeah. I've never thought about that. Yeah. It's from HistoryExtra.com. And it's a quickie. When William the Conqueror invaded in 1066, he wore just a long male shirt, so answering nature's call was pretty straightforward. <laughs> but it was a different prospect when Italian and German craftsmen developed full plate armor in the 1400s, which was a boon on the battlefield, but vexing for a knight in the latrine. <laughs> and suits of armor still didn't have a metal plate covering the knight's crotch or buttocks, as this made riding a horse difficult. But those areas were protected by strong metal skirts flowing out around the hips. And under this dangled a short chainmail shirt to prevent an enemy jabbing anything sharp upwards between the legs. And beneath that, a knight also wore quilted cotton leggings so his limbs wouldn't chafe. <laughs> but to stop the steel leg plates sliding painfully down onto the ankles, they had to be held up by a waist belt or by being attached to the torso plate. So while wearing all that... A knight desperate for the toilet would have most likely needed the assistance of his squire to lift or remove the rear cullet so that he could squat down. The fact, however, that the leg armor was often suspended tightly from the waist belt worn over the leggings might have required it to be detached first before a chivalric chap could comfortably <laughs> drop his trousers. This would have been a particular nuisance if the knight was suffering from dysentery, so it was likely that he may have simply chosen to soil himself. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it'll be more scary on the battlefield. If somebody's coming at me yeah. with a sword and they're also covered in feces, That's it adds a little bit of horror <laughs> to it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, That that's very true. You know, use every weapon that you have. Right, right. <laughs> Animals will do it. They'll, they'll pee on you if they're scared of you, so it makes sense that we yeah. should do it too. Why not? Yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one is also a little short one. It is from Science Alert. It's called Incredible Images Reveal a Mysteriously Formed Triple Crater on Mars. Ooh. So a uh, little history of Mars. For those of you who may not be familiar, Mars is 4.6 billion years old. And in that time, it's taken its fair share of punches from passing asteroids and comets. Today, the surface is covered in no less than 43,000 impact craters, each one larger than five kilometers. Presumably there's some small ones too, but those are the ones we've categorized. Wow. The reason we know all this is because it is some unfortunate scientist's job out there to sit and examine these craters for clues about their origins. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that gets these craterologists kind of excited is when two craters overlap, like a Venn diagram. Statistically, it's not impossible that a meteor just struck the same place twice, but this can also sometimes mean that the asteroid broke into pieces as it entered the atmosphere. And the two craters actually came from the same impact. But if it breaks hmm. up too much, it just vaporizes and never hits the surface at all. So the presence of these maybe broken up just a little impacts can give us an idea of the exact thickness of the atmosphere at the time the meteor crashed down. So it's a little bit of a detective hunt, but it seems like it's getting us useful information in the end. And now in the ancient Martian highlands of Noachus Terra, which is a region heavily impacted roughly four billion years ago, Astronomers have spotted a triple whammy crater made of three overlapping basins. What's more, these three craters are not all that large as far as Martian craters go, between 28 and 45 kilometers each. So the smaller target reduces the likelihood that all three happened at different times. It is still the most likely explanation because each of these craters has its own distinct edge going through the middle. And usually when three broken pieces hit at once, the whole middle of the impact is smooth. Mm. But... If it were a relatively smaller asteroid that had been broken into three pieces, that would be very cool because it would indicate that at the time this rock struck about four billion years ago, Mars's atmosphere was thick, 
which would mean it was warm and wet and much more sustainable for life than it is now. Or maybe not. We don't know. But it's a possibility. And that's, you know, scientists sometimes have to get excited about possibilities because they don't get positive answers that often. (laughs) (laughs) But that's pretty much it. They're basically just saying, oh, oh, look, we found a triple crater. That might mean Mars used to have an atmosphere and a bunch of plant life. Who knows? That would be pretty cool, honestly. Yeah. My thing is, I always imagine that, you know, in the typical dystopian child who read too many sci-fi novels, I always imagine that Mars did have a full-on flourishing civilization and that the state Mars is in now is basically the post-climate change, post-industrialization result. And we're going to figure that out right at the moment that it becomes too late. Like, that would be the dramatic twist if I were writing the story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, interesting, I That's guess. That's right. Fun, fun <laughs> yeah. to think about in the, <laughs> yeah. in the grand scheme of we're all going to die. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles that we did not get to on damninteresting.com include Missing Ingredient for Life, Finally Found on a Comet, The Lettuce Workers Strike of 1930, and Scientists Confirm Entirely New Species of Gelatinous Blob from the Deep Dark Sea. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and keep us going, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. (laughs) 